mood. So there's thousands and thousands of functionality that we're appreciating comes from our gut microbiome. But of course, if we don't look after this organ, we're not going to be getting all those health benefits. And it was really, I guess, you know, my background seeing patients that led me to do a PhD in gut health back a decade or so ago, because, you know, I was, I was seeing all of these people, you know, struggling with elements of their gut health. And I was finding that if I, you know, really helped nourish their gut at that time, they were having improvements in things like their mental health, their immune health, you know, their skin health, but we didn't really understand why. And I was like, I need to get to the bottom of that. So I was like, without any hardcore evidence, you know, no one's going to really believe me. So that's when I, you know, signed away in my early 20s to doing a PhD to look whether we nourish the gut through the right nutrition, whether that can have these far-reaching benefits. And it was really that PhD that changed everything. It was like, wow, this is exciting. So that's when I moved from Australia to the UK to continue to work at King's. And it just really is a game changer for our health and happiness as well to really tap into this new area of research. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is Dr. Megan Rossi. Megan is a registered dietitian and nutritionist with a PhD in gut health from the Faculty of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences at the University of Queensland, Australia. Megan's PhD was recognized for its contribution to science, receiving the Dean's Award for Excellence. Megan leads research at King's College London, investigating nutrition-based therapies in gut health, including pre and probiotics, dietary fibers, the low FODMAP diet, and food additives. Megan was the recipient of the 2017 British Medical Journal Open Gastroenterology Prize, Best Clinical Science Abstract for Oral Presentation, and the British Nutrition Foundation Drum and Pump Priming Award. Megan is also an honorary lecturer at the University of Queensland, Australia. The occasion for today's chat is to dive into her latest book, How to Eat More Plants and More. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Megan Rossi to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Megan Rossi, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure, Doug. I'm excited to chat with you. Anytime that I have an opportunity to, to chat with somebody who is passionate about gut health, who is passionate about nutrition, who is passionate about making a difference in other people's lives, I get really excited. I get really inspired and pumped up. So thank you for taking the time. Look, I mean, I, as we're going to talk about, am so excited by this fascinating and research-backed area of gut health that I just want the world to be able to appreciate how much potential nourishing our gut really has in terms of improving things from your mood and mental health to your hormone health, to your metabolism, to your skin health and your immune health. And I'm sure we'll go into all these connections, but it is really empowering stuff that we're finding out in the research world. It's really empowering and it's also very trending. And I think everybody has taken the opportunity to jump on the gut health bandwagon. Not that it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think with people jumping on the bandwagon, there also comes a lot of myths and facts that aren't necessarily true. So in your eyes, when you're looking through social media, you're, you're looking on the internet at what people are saying about gut health, 
what are like three things that you think are absolutely fact that are true that you're seeing? And what are three things that you see that are just plain false and absolute fiction? Yeah, look, I mean, just to, to add to that point about, you know, everyone's jumping on that bandwagon. Look, I'm a, I'm a researcher by background. I never thought I would enter this social media world. I don't do it personally. But it was just that frustration that despite the amazing research that we're doing, I work at King's College in London as a research fellow, it just wasn't being translated to the public. And I also continue to see clients, you know, while being a researcher as a dietitian, and I'll see people on these craziest diets thinking they were doing their gut good because, you know, they read it on a blog or something like that, when actually it was literally the opposite of what we were hearing. So I guess some of the, the key, you know, things that, yes, I definitely recommend we do in terms of looking after our gut is de-stressing. You know, things like belly breathing, you know, box breathing, those sorts of things. There actually is really good science about how that can tap into the two-way connection that occurs between our gut and our brain. So taking five minutes out to do something like that is definitely something that I recommend. Diversifying your diet. So adding more plants to your diet. And essentially, that's what How to Eat More Plants, my new book, is all about. And I'm sure we'll go into the details, I guess, of the science behind that. But really, that is a number one predictor of gut health is adding in different types of plants to your diet. So definitely trying to do that. In fact, I recommend people do that from the super six, the six plant-based food groups. And I'm sure we'll go into that as well. And then the third one I would say that I have started to see people talk about is chewing their food more. And it sounds really simple. And a lot of people in clinics say to me, really, that's your advice? But actually, it can be a game changer for people who are struggling with bloating and things like that. Because we not only start to physically break down the food in our mouth, but we have enzymes in our saliva that actually start to chemically break down the food. Like nearly 30% of carbs is actually digested, broken down in our mouth. So if we're not chewing at least 15 to 20 times, then we're probably on the back foot in terms of that digestion. So they're probably the three things that I'm like pro that I'm seeing trending on social. The, the three things I'm seeing that are complete kind of myth-based is that you have to go on long fasts to have good gut health, that you have to follow a restrictive diet in terms of plants only, so 100% plant-based, i.e. vegan. Again, that's that a complete myth in terms of gut health. And then the third one is that you have to start your day with juices to have good gut health. So that's kind of the three pro and three against. Yeah, and I'm, I love that you brought them up and that you helped to kind of validate the things that are kind of trending in a good way, that things that people can do to improve their gut health. And then also kind of talking about the, some of the things that are pretty common online that you just think are a complete waste of time and just completely false when it comes to improving your gut health. And I would say that gut health is trending, I think, for a good reason. There's obviously so many benefits to having a healthy gut. Your gut has so many functions when it comes to our mental health, our physical health, our hormonal health, our emotional health, as kind of you touched on. So maybe if you could unpack the role of the gut, what the gut microbiome is, and why it's so important to the functioning of our mental, physical, and emotional health. Yeah, that's a great one. Like, I think everyone's heard of the word gut health because it's in every second paper, every second media that we kind of read. But what it is exactly is not often communicated that accurately. So when we think about gut health, it actually relates to the functioning of our nine meter long digestive tract. So that's nine meters coiled up in each and every one of us that delivers food from entry all the way to exit. Now that nine meters, i.e. gut health, is incredibly important for three key reasons. 
One is because of digestion, and we've known that for you know, a long time. If you don't have a good gut lining, no matter how healthy the food you put into your body is, you can't extract that nutrition from your gut to get into your blood to feed things like your skin, your heart, your brain, etc. So really to make the most out of your food, you need to have good gut health. The second one is the fact that 70% of our immune system lives along that nine meter digestive tract. So we certainly see people who've got better gut health also have much stronger, more resilient immune systems. And that's played out in COVID-19 as well. There's um, you know, a wealth of research uh, and particularly done by some of my colleagues at King's College in London, where they've actually shown that people who have better gut health, if they do get COVID, are less likely to become unwell with COVID because of their more resilient immune systems. And then the third element, as you touched on, the gut microbiome really is this landmark scientific discovery that's changed essentially what it means to be human. This is what's brought the fame to the concept of gut health. So we've known for a long time that we've had these bacteria in our gut, but I guess we didn't really understand A, how many, or B, what they actually did for us, because we didn't have the technology to to kind of investigate and, and understand their genes and their number. But thanks to technology over the last decade, we've now appreciated that actually there's more of these microorganisms like the bacteria in us than there is human cells. And then we've gone a step further to appreciate what many of these bacteria do. And they do things like regulate our hormones, you know, produce vitamins and minerals, digest certain foods, impact things like our blood sugar regulation, our metabolism, our appetite hormones, you know, our, our mental health kind of connections and, and mood. So there's thousands and thousands of functionality that we're appreciating comes from our gut microbiome. But of course, if we don't look after this organ, we're not going to be getting all those health benefits. And it was really, I guess, you know, my background seeing patients that led me to do a PhD in gut health back a decade or so ago, because, you know, I was, I was seeing all of these people, you know, struggling with elements of their gut health. And I was finding that if I, you know, really helped nourish their gut at that time, they were having improvements in things like their mental health, their immune health, you know, their skin health, but we didn't really understand why. And I was like, I need to get to the bottom of that. So I was like, without any hardcore evidence, you know, no one's going to really believe me. So that's when I you know, signed away in my early 20s to doing a PhD to look whether we nourish the gut through the right nutrition, whether that can have these far-reaching benefits. And it was really that PhD that changed everything. It was like, wow, this is exciting. So that's when I moved from Australia to the UK to continue to work at King's. And it just really is a game changer for our health and happiness as well to really tap into this new area of research. Absolutely. And just speaking from my own experience, I can tell that when my gut is off, when I'm feeling bloated, when I'm just feeling like stuff just isn't digesting properly, I feel like other parts of my life are off too. I feel like my sleep is often off, my energy is down, I'm more irritable, and I can go on and on with different examples. And I know one of the keys to improving digestion, to improving the functioning of our gut is fiber. And I think that can be confusing for so many people because now you're seeing like packaged goods have fiber in it. You're seeing ultra processed foods that have fiber in it. And I think I would think that that's different than getting fiber from legumes, fruits and vegetables and stuff like that. So if you could maybe explain a bit what the role of dietary fiber is, how much fiber like the average person should aim to get and what are some of the best ways to accomplish that goal? 
Looks like I'm so happy you brought this up because it's a huge bugbear of mine where we've, and I'll explain why we found out, you know, fiber can be so beneficial. And now all of these commercial companies, these food manufacturers are like, oh, fiber is a buzzword. Let's just jam in all this ultra processed fiber into foods. So we know that fiber can be beneficial, but the reason why it's beneficial is that it fertilizes our gut bacteria. So interestingly, Along that nine meters, we digest most of our protein, our fats, and our carbs high up that nine meters. It gets into our blood, we feed our skin, our hair, all that sort of stuff. But whatever doesn't get digested there because we don't have the enzymes or we malabsorb it, makes its way into the lower part of our intestine called the large intestine. Now, that's where we literally have those trillions of bacteria. And the bacteria are the unique ones that have the enzymes to digest dietary fiber. And so essentially the fibers is like the fuel for the gut bacteria. However, there's not just one type of fiber in our plant foods. There's like close to a hundred different types of fiber. So if we're feeding our gut bacteria, just one type of refined fiber that's, you know, found in a, you know, processed product that really kind of only feeds a subset of our gut bacteria who like that processed fiber version. And the bacteria like that like the fiber from nuts and seeds, they die off because they don't have the fertilizer for them. The bacteria that likes the fiber from cauliflower will die off. The bacteria that likes the fiber from watermelon, for example, will die off because they need their preferred dietary fiber source. So this is why we're seeing that actually re refined fibers don't have that health benefit attached to the other more natural sources of fiber. So I talk a lot about this in the book as one of the key principles is trying to get something from the super six in each and every day. Now the super six is your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, and your herbs and your spices. Now most of us might be getting in three or so of them, but they're probably missing out at least, you know, another two or three. And what happens there? By cutting out a whole plant-based food group, you're missing the unique fibers that come from one of those super six. And therefore, you're narrowing down the fertilizer for the gut bacteria. In turn, you narrow down the types of bacteria you have and narrow down the skills that they possess to order to like look after our body. So one of the fundamental principles that I alluded to at the start is plant diversity. So trying to get in at least 30 different types of plants, but from the super six, not just focusing on all veggie types of plants or all um, whole grain types of, of plants. You need to get that diversity in because that's what we see in the scientific studies as people who've got the best gut health and actually those who live longer and happier also have those super six in. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Organifi. As you know, Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers that contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving. Recently, I have been loving the refreshing taste of the new Organifi green juice, Crisp Apple. That's right, Crisp Apple. It comes with all the benefits you've come to love in the classic green juice with a new juicy twist. Enjoy the same fan favorite nourishing ingredients such as ashwagandha, moringa, spirulina, and chlorella designed to hydrate, energize, and support cortisol balance. The new green juice crisp apple is made with organic, wholesome, hand-picked apples. 
and tastes like a fresh, juicy slice in every sip, making it the first of its kind the whole family will absolutely love. It's only available for a limited time, so make sure to stock up now and take advantage of this nourishing green juice that tastes absolutely divine. So go to www.organifi.com backslash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com backslash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off any item. Now back to the show. Yeah, diversity is so important. And just to touch on the name of your book, the name of your book is How to Eat More Plants. And I want to get into how somebody does that. You mentioned somebody eating 30 different types of plants, I guess, throughout the week, I think, right, is the end goal. What does that look like as far as like, I'm sure somebody can't just eat one strawberry, then one blueberry, then like, you know, like three or four black beans and and then that encompasses it. So what does an actual serving size look like of one of these 30 food groups? And then like, what are a few like small steps maybe that somebody could take? Because I think it can be overwhelming when you're telling somebody to eat 30 different sources of plant foods each week. Like what are a few small steps somebody can take to get them closer to that goal? Yeah, absolutely. That 30 number, you know, when I told some of my clients, they're like, what? No way. I can't do that. Like I'm a busy person. So there's a number of very easy hacks and we'll definitely go into that. But your first question, which was about. The first question was about like serving size, like how much of each of the foods. So your first question about the serving sizes, I love that. It shows that you are very good at attention to detail. Um, so in the book, I actually came up with this plant point, you know, system, so to speak, where each different plant gets a unique type of, gets its own point. So if you have 10 strawberries, you only get one point. But if you have three strawberries, a banana, and some quinoa, you'll get three points. So each different species gets a new point, essentially, except with herbs and spices, and like tea and coffee, they only get a quarter of a point because we have them much smaller amounts. Now, so the first port of call is to get people thinking diversity. Now, I don't care actually the volume or the portion size they're having as that first goal. Okay, I just want people to go to the supermarket and think diversity. I want them to go, I'm not gonna just get chickpeas, I'm gonna get the three bean mix, you know, in water. I'm not just gonna get my pumpkin seeds, I'm gonna get the three seed mix. I'm not just going to get my cauliflower. I'm going to get the stir fry mix of veg. So changing that mindset of diversity because each different type of plant literally contains hundreds of different types of plant chemicals. And in the book, I've got this dissection of the apple where I show the 300 different types of plant chemicals in like a boring, humble apple, including things like dopamine, the feel-good hormone. It's got things like incitol, which is really good for polycystic ovary syndrome. And that's just a humble apple. If you extrapolate that out to all the other plants, you get to appreciate that they've got their own unique profile. So that's the first step is just to try get that 30 number. The next step is for people like you who might already be hitting your 30 where we start focusing on portion sizes. So I've got a portion size like cup and hand figure where you get a better idea so a portion of one of the legumes is half a cup cooked a portion of your whole grains is again half a cup cooked a portion of veg is half cup cooked or a full cup raw a piece of fruit as a portion is about 100 grams like a fifth size Uh, nuts and seeds is about a tablespoon size Um, so i go into that next level of then hitting that quantity but What I found in clinical practice is that as soon as I tell people about that kind of diversity concept, you know, they end up reaching the portions without having to actually have that as an extra, oh, great, and now I've got to think of my portions. Because, yeah, if you only just sprinkle a teaspoon of mixed seeds on your breakfast, 
you know, you might only be getting like three pumpkin seeds, but if you're doing that every day, you're actually probably going to be getting, you know, your tablespoon at the end of the week. So actually most people do hit a good portion if they start thinking that way. Right. I love how you kind of outline these kind of small steps where you said like the first step isn't necessarily about hitting these serving size goals. The first step is actually just trying to get in the habit and in the pattern of diversity and just getting different types of plant foods in your diet. And I, I think that everyone's always looking for, for shortcuts. I'm not saying that I want you to just come on here and just give like these shortcuts that are going to have people completely transform their gut health in a matter of days. But let's just say there's somebody that's listening to this that's like, all right, like 30 seems like a lot for me. Let me just start with like three to five. If there were like a few of your favorite foods out of the ones that you talk about in your book that just for somebody to start in the grocery store, they wanted to just check a box and say, you know what, like I did something good for my gut health today. What would be some of the three to five foods that you would get? Look, I'm going to say go the mixed beans, the tinned mixed beans. Just check that they're in water and not in any sauce or brine. But they're just such a powerhouse of these things called prebiotics. So specifically called galacto oligosaccharide, which essentially is like rocket fuel for your gut bacteria. So really good way to nourish them. Now, if you have a sensitive gut, and I have a sensitive gut menu plan in the book, because a lot of people, that's one of the barriers. They're like, I get plants are healthy, but plants just don't agree with me. And that's a big myth that I hope, you know, we can help people overcome is that actually, you know, I've been a clinician in the past 15 years and there's not been a gut. I haven't been able to teach to enjoy all the plants. But you have to go slow and steady, particularly if you've got a very sensitive gut and you have to work on the gut-brain axis. Things like the box breathing for five minutes a day, all those sorts of things, helps calm the gut lining. And then you literally, like, tablespoon at a time, teach the gut to metabolize it more effectively. It's kind of like, you know, at the gym, right? You know, if you're not used to working out and then you go hit it really hard, you're going to feel the pain sore. It's not doing any harm to your body. Same with things like gut issues if you eat, you know, too many plants at once. It's not actually physically doing damage. But it feels bad. You don't feel good. But if you go to the gym and slowly, gradually build up, you know, your weights or your endurance, you feel really good by the end and you have all those health benefits attached to being more fit. That's the same with, you know, plants for those who've got more sensitive guts. So, yeah, I think that's a real important point there too. So the second, so the first one was the mixed veins. The second one I would recommend is mixed veg of some form, if you can. Again, a stir fry. You know, whack in some garlic, some soy sauce, you know, a date to get a little bit of sweetness, you know, maybe even some oily fish. That would probably be my third one for the gut because actually the omega-3s in oily fish is really beneficial for your gut. Now, I completely understand why some people might want to go plants only for environmental, you know, religious, cultural reasons. But actually, according to human health, things like oily fish are really beneficial so I do recommend that if people choose not to eat oily fish, that they do have something like an omega-3 or algae oil supplement, because we know not just for our gut health, but our mental health, it's really quite important. So I guess they're probably my, my, my top three picks. I love it. I think those are all like great foods for people to start with if they not only want to improve their gut health, but also improve other areas of their health as well. And you touched on the fact that sometimes people think that fruits and vegetables can be bad for their gut because they might feel bloated. They might feel, they might have some digestive issues. And a lot of times people would just assume that, all right, well, maybe I'm just not meant to eat this much food. And in reality, like 
it's just putting you're putting a band-aid on the problem. You're not really addressing the problem. So I have a lot of clients that I've worked with throughout the years that will come in the next day and be like, oh, I'm so bloated. I feel like crap. And I'll be like, oh, what'd you eat last night? And they're like, I didn't really eat that bad. And I, and I that's the kind of conversation that I'll have many times. So let's just say somebody comes to you and let's just take like an, the, an average person, like somebody who doesn't have too much, too many complex issues and they're feeling bloated. They're having digestive problems. What are some of the questions that you ask them? And then what are a couple first steps you normally have them take? Yeah, look, I said to you, that's what my first book, Love You Gut, is all about, helping people get on those digestive, on top of those digestive issues, whether it's things like diarrhea, constipation, bloating, heartburn, IBS, and things like that. So for bloating, it's really important to think about quite a number of different factors. The first one is things like, it sounds quite ridiculous, um, but are you wearing tight clothes all day long? Because it's actually was diagnosed in a medical journal in 1997, I think, tight pants syndrome, where some physicians were finding that a lot of people were coming to them complaining of gut disturbances, bloating, a bit of tummy pain. And they found it was because people were wearing really tight, like high-waisted pants at that time. So a lot of us, I think, you know, go to the gym and then kind of just sit in our gym gear all day, particularly females wearing tights. So what I would say is make sure you wear looser pants because if you are, like, constricting your tummy, what happens is it has a rebound effect and can create a little bit of low-grade inflammation. So that's something that people don't think about because always their focus on is, is their diet, right? But in terms of the dietary aspect, what I would check is things like, are you having too many of these sugar alcohols? So things like xylitol and sorbitol, which is in a lot of these sugar-free foods. Because what happens is our body doesn't digest them very well. It's even in things like chewing gum. And what happens to that means the bacteria that properly ferment it and produce quite a lot of gas, like bursts. It's kind of like a bit of a um, malabsorbed scenario. And in turn, that gas can like expand the gut and can get bloating from that. So just check you're not having too many of those sugar alcohols. So check the labels of foods that you're having. The second one is, are you having, you know, too much fruit? This is a common one for people who it's fruit season, you know, cherry season or something like that. And they think fruit's really healthy, but they go over the top on it. And what happens is if we have too much fruit in one sitting, so I would say for people with sensitive guts, usually try and keep it to 100 grams. You can have three sittings across the day. So I'm not saying don't have your fruit. But if you're having any more and you've got sensitive gut, what happens is your body malabsorbs the fructose, the fruit sugar. And in turn, the bacteria then rapidly ferment it and you get that extra gas there. Then, you know, for some people, it's about things like the caffeine can stimulate their gut movements and therefore they don't have as much time to digest the food. It kind of dumps down. Other people, they could have a food intolerance, like lactose intolerance, for example. It's a really common one, particularly in people of Asian and African heritage in terms of a, a trigger for bloating because they malabsorb the milk sugar called lactose because they don't have the enzyme. Again, the bacteria rapidly ferment that. So they're kind of some of the key things that I would look at. And then as a next stage, I would check out their dietary intake of the thing called FODMAPs. Have you heard of FODMAPs before? Yeah, I think I've heard that when people are having gut issues, it's good to be on like a low FODMAP diet, right? Yeah, so at King's, we actually do a lot of clinical trials looking at low FODMAP diet. And it's got a lot of evidence for people who've got quite severe IBS. And I think it's done so well, people now go on this restrictive diet and keep on it. And essentially what it does is cuts out a lot of these beneficial prebiotic foods because these people got very sensitive gut, so any gas produced, which is something the bacteria naturally do when they eat fiber, it's completely normal and inert. But if you've got a sensitive gut and that gas is produced, it stretches out your intestine 
And people with these sensitive guts have literally millions of nerve endings that are really fiery. So if that stretches, that's going to trigger those gut issues and the pain and things like that. So the moral of a low format diet is to reduce them down just for four weeks and then systematically reintroduce. Now, doing that actually can do harm to your gut bacteria. And it's recommended to only ever do it when you're seeing you know, a dietitian, which is not accessible for everyone. So actually in the book, I do have this up light approach where essentially I've just cut out the top kind of like 20 really, really high format foods. And then I help people systematically reintroduce that. But having some some break from these foods for about two or so weeks can be helpful if someone's got really bad bloating that's just really getting them down. Sometimes you need a bit of a gut rest of these higher format foods. And then we systematically start to reintroduce them in, in smaller portions, but definitely don't restrict long-term. What are some of the common foods that you see on this like higher FODMAP list that you would say across the board, people tend to need to either cut out or reduce when they're trying to improve their gut health? Well, I wouldn't say they need to necessarily cut them out to improve their gut health because it's it's tricky because these beneficial foods are prebiotic. So they feed their gut bacteria. But what it is, is there's two different people. So you either fall into a, quite a sensitive gut or a very, you know, kind of sturdy gut. If you can, you know, stomach having, you know, a cup of mixed beans and have no upset stomach then go for it you know load up on these prebiotic foods which is the legumes the onion the garlic the mushrooms the cauliflower those sorts of things you know go to town however if you've got a bit of a sensitive gut i want to get you over here to a more resilient gut but it does take a little bit more work so what i would say is maybe for if you're having really bad kind of upset stomach maybe for a short period of time I would cut out some of those high format foods, which I mentioned. And, you know, after this, I can send you this, you know, format light list. So people have an idea of what sorts of ones. But I don't think people should be doing a full-blown low format diet on their own because it's really risky and it's not good, not good for their microbiome. So just cutting out some of these, these higher ones, like I mentioned, you know, the legumes, the garlic, the onion, cauliflower, cabbage, mushrooms, you know, loads of a lot of your fruit, dates and things like that. But then you would slowly, literally, I'm talking like one tablespoon each day, second week, two tablespoons, build it up. And what happens, your gut bacteria then actually learn to metabolize and break down these prebiotic foods more efficiently. So they develop the enzymes really amazingly to then be able to deal with it. So that is definitely something that's worth doing for those who've got sense of gut. But the other thing for the sense of gut, essentially two things. One is slow and steady with those foods. The second one, though, is relaxing that gut brain axis. So it's doing things like the belly breathing for five minutes or the box breathing or doing a, a bit of yoga in terms of stretching out that gut and relaxing that communication. Because what happens if this is really stressed, your brain's really stressed, it literally strangles your gut. And when you've got a strangled gut, when the bacteria produce that little bit of gas, like, like I said, it's very natural and normal, your gut lining can't absorb it. So it can't get into your blood for you to breathe out, which will actually what happens in most people when we eat these high fiber foods. And we don't get that trapped wind. But for people who've got that sense of gut and it can't get through their intestinal wall, it gets stuck in their gut, causes the cramps, causes the bloating or comes out the back end. So for those people actually working on that gut brain axis for, you know, five, 10 minutes a day in conjunction to that slow and steady technique is really the key to being able to get you to have that really resilient gut where you can load up on all the plants to then have those health benefits in terms of hormonal health, mental health, immune function, et cetera. 
And so I guess all the things that we're talking about, improving the health of our gut, you're talking about belly breathing, yoga, this is all obviously going to help people reduce stress in day-to-day life, I would imagine too, right? So I think it's so important. And I know the title of your book is How to Eat More Plants, but you're not really advocating for people to go 100% vegan or plant-based. Why is that? Because science doesn't say that we should be. You know, like I said, I completely understand from animal cruelty, welfare, religious, all those reasons why people would want to. But when we look at the bulk of scientific research, it highlights that things like oily fish actually have remarkable health benefits that you can't sadly get from plant foods. So some plant foods like um, chia seeds, tofu, walnuts, you know, do contain some omega-3s, but they're not the same type, they're shorter chain omega-3s than the stuff in oily fish. And that's why, you know, one of the main reasons. And we also see things like fermented dairy, like kefir, for example, actually has got quite a lot of health benefits, like weight management, even mental health in some scenarios. So they're kind of the, the key reasons that the body of evidence, independent research that's highlighted that the health elements of that. So, you know, one of the principles that I talk about in the book is enjoying mostly plants, but it doesn't need to be only plants. As long as the base of your diet is plants, Whatever you choose to add on top of that is completely up to you. I love that approach because I think so many times we see extremes where people are like on either side where they're like, all right, I'm going to be 100% vegan or I'm just not going to eat vegetables at all. And there's so much nuance in between all of that. And I think there's like these dietary patterns that are best for human health and you can kind of choose how you eat like based on your cultural values, based on how you feel about how it contributes to the environment, ethical reasons, that sort of thing. And with that said, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make when they go all in into being plant-based is they don't get enough protein. And I know that people can get enough protein in their diet from plants if they eat enough, but I think for the average person, that can be quite challenging when they're first getting started. So what are some of your biggest tips for people or things they should be aware of if they're going to start to incorporate more plants in their diet and maybe reduce the amount of animal products they're eating to make sure that they're getting enough protein. Yeah, again, you just need to be very, very savvy of that diversity factor, i.e. getting in something from those super sex. Because if you are ensuring you're getting in something from the legumes, which are actually a really quite good source of of protein or plant-based protein, Nuts and seeds, another decent source of plant-based protein. If you're getting in, you know, those in the super six each day, then you're probably going to be getting sufficient protein if you are just a generally healthy person. If you're an athlete, then you need to be very savvy in terms of making sure that, you know, you're having quite large amounts of these specific types of high-protein plant-based foods, i.e. the legume family certain types of nuts and seeds, even some whole grains, like, oh, it's actually a decent amount of protein in them. But yeah, for the average person, I would say, you know, it's just making sure that you're ticking those kind of higher protein types of the plant groups most days. But yeah, I mean, it is a little bit trickier, um, particularly when you're starting out just to think about that protein element. Yeah, just think of diversity, you're probably going to be hitting that. Yeah, I love that. And I think you do have to be like way more careful if you're somebody that is not just an athlete, but somebody who's like into lifting weights, because we know that resistance training, building muscle is so important for longevity. And I think that it certainly can be done. 
you know, if to get enough protein in your diet, but you really have to be meticulous that you're getting it from like sources of foods that have higher amounts of protein and you're not eating like way too many calories because you're just trying to stack so many foods just to get enough protein. You really want to be careful when, when you're doing that. But again, it certainly can be done. One of the other misconceptions I think that exists with regards to gut health, you see this a lot, is when people are having gut issues and they're feeling like their gut health is off, they're like, all right, I'm just going to take a probiotic or I'm just going to start like adding this supplement every single day and I'm going to fix my gut. And I've heard from people that that's just not the way it works, right? I've heard from gut experts, it's just not the way it works. So if you could explain your thoughts on that and when or when not a probiotic or a gut health supplement might be necessary. Yeah, this is a great one. I mean, you know, every week the media changes their opinion on it. One week they're saying we all need to have a probiotic. Next week they're saying you don't need to take a probiotic, it's a waste of your money. And, you know, the truth, as you as you said from other experts, is kind of in, in between, as with most of these scenarios, where we need to start thinking about probiotics as different types of bacteria. So an example is with, you know, vitamins and minerals. If you have iron deficiency, you're not going to go and take a vitamin D supplement and expect your iron deficiency to improve, are you? They're different things. The same with probiotics and the bacteria within them. They're all very, very different. There's absolutely no point just taking any random bacteria off the shelf unless you know what the bacteria does, what dose you need to take it at, the duration you need to take it at, and how you should take it on with food or on a, a fasted state. So actually, when I was writing the first book, Love Your Gut, I got some of my colleagues from King's um, College in London to review the scientific evidence around probiotics. And what they came up with is seven key areas where there's actually good scientific evidence to take a specific type of probiotic, specific type of bacteria, and they've come up with these probiotic prescriptions. So an example is, if you have to take antibiotics for whatever reason, you know, we definitely take them too much, but sometimes they're life-saving, we definitely need to take them. If you have to take antibiotics, there is really good scientific evidence that you would take a bacteria called, or it's actually a yeast, called Saccharomyces boulardii. You would take that at 5 billion units throughout your antibiotic period and for a week after. Now, that sounds quite therapeutic, doesn't it? But you know what? If we want the benefit of probiotics, we need to treat them that way. And, you know, some areas, for example, acne. You know, we reviewed the science that there's no evidence, no strong evidence that would convince me as a clinician to say you should take a specific probiotic for your acne because we don't have the bacteria that's had that benefit yet. You know, there actually is really good evidence. Also, one of the seven that I spoke about is if you've got a family history of eczema and you're looking to get pregnant, then if a mum takes this specific probiotic during pregnancy, not just any off the shelf, I think it's called HNNN01, I think it's a lactobacillus type, that bacteria, you take it during a pregnancy and you give it to bub for the first three months of life, actually reduces bub's risk of eczema by about 50%. So it's important that you be very specific you know, with the bacteria having essentially. I know that was a, a long-winded answer, but that's, you know, if we want the benefits of our microbiome, there is those nuances that we need to jump on board to have that benefit. I think it was very well explained, and I think it's some great tips for people to hear if they're considering getting a probiotic or, or buying one is kind of listening to what you just said, because like you mentioned, it's not that you're 100% against them. It's just like when or why, and make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. What about things like polyphenols and fermented foods? Like, what do you feel about these few things that have been talked about a lot lately as far as how they can improve gut health? I mean, do you, do you believe in that? 
So my team has actually done some research on fermented food. We did a, a systematic review in terms of looking at what the evidence is. So we looked at things like kefir, which is water kefir, which is a fermented type of sugar, or you can have dairy kefir, fermented type of milk. There's also kombucha, fermented tea, kimchi and sauerkraut, fermented veg, etc. And what we saw is that in test tube studies, there is some convincing evidence, but there hasn't really been the human studies necessarily to back that up. Now, that's not saying that they don't work. It's saying that we haven't necessarily convinced the funders to be able to do research studies, like the government, unfortunately, looking at these. But we do have observational studies that shows, you know, that our ancestors used to have these foods in their diet with health benefits attached to it. And we know particularly the fermented veg side of things, so like the kimchi and the sauerkraut, actually they do contain a lot of these polyphenols, these plant chemicals that are associated with health benefits. So I think, you know, even if you don't necessarily get the bacteria from them because they may die off in your acidic stomach, you are probably going to be getting some of the other beneficial chemicals like the polyphenols, which when you ingest, our bacteria that's within us digest them and have those health benefits attached to them. Now with, I think, all of these things, it comes a bit of a trend. A lot of the kombuchas flying around are really high in sugar. So if you're tasting a kombucha, the fermented tea, and it tastes really sweet, then that's probably not legit. When you're tasting it, it needs to taste a little bit sour because what happens is the bacteria and yeast within kombucha ferment that sugar and produce these organic acids, and they've got a bit of a taste to them, a bit of a tart taste. If they've got too much sugar in it and the bacteria and yeast haven't fermented it, then you're just going to be drinking all this sugar just like a you know soda or a soft drink, and it's not going to have those health benefits. I love that you share that about kombucha. I drink kombucha. I drink a kombucha every day, and I normally get like the GTS brand. Do they have that over in the UK? I think it's GTS. I have to fact check that, but I think it's a pretty decent one. It's not too high in sugar, if I remember. Does it taste taste a bit sour? Yeah. Yeah, it does taste a bit sour. I've actually used to make my own kombucha. I would get the scoby, and then I would add like I think that was like green tea packets, and then you would add some sugar, and you would let it kind of ferment over a few days. And I think it was good, but it wasn't as good as what I bought in the store. <laughs> Yeah, because if, if you if you ferment it too long at home, it turns into more of a vinegar. So I feel like you have to have quite a lot of time on your hands to be able to make a really good brew of kombucha. My mum makes it, I try to make it, and then just, you know, you've got to travel for work and you just can't pick it at the right time. Whereas kefir, like the fermented dairy, is so easy to make at home. You just get these grains and you just pop it in some milk literally for like 24 hours and then you've got your kefir. Like it's so easy to make. So I'm, I definitely make that at home, but the kombucha, I've stopped. I just rely on my mom to make it. <laughs> when we wrap up here, I'm going to have to get a recipe from you on uh, how to make kefir because that does sound good. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll send it to you. All right. Well, Megan, I could talk to you for days and days and days about this stuff because not only do I enjoy talking to you, I think this information is so important. I think people um, are always asking questions about how to improve their gut, how to improve their microbiome, how to reduce stress, how to eat better. And I think we covered all of that in our talk today. So with that said, I not only wanted to thank you for coming on, but if you could maybe let the listeners know if they want to get your new book, if they want to connect with you on social media, Where's the best place for them to do that? So I'm at social, the gut health doctor across all the avenues. And the book is How to Eat More Plants. You get it from all your good bookstores. Obviously best to buy local if you can, but then Amazon, the big guys also stock it as well. Sweet. Well, I'll make sure to add the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. 
Maybe it was something that Megan said at the beginning as far as fact or fiction when it comes to gut health. Maybe it was something that she said about the importance of fiber when we talked about fiber. Maybe it was something that she said about how to get more plants into your diet. Or maybe it was something that she just said about probiotics and kombucha and stuff like that and whether or not it could be a good idea to implement those things. Whatever it was, whatever your takeaway was, tag Megan, tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And we'll see you next time.